Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. Evening, everybody, and welcome to Nightlight. I have Ken Quiethawk to thank for that lovely intro, plus his addition to it, which I always smile at. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com. He and his wife are native storytellers, and they have preserved an ancient art, and it's amazing to listen to him and his wife as they repeat the stories of the first generation of the first, the first people that were in this country, theoretically. Um, so thank you, thank, to him, thank you to him. Uh, tonight's guest I am so excited about. I have David Brody on with me tonight, and he has written probably my very favorite series of books ever, and I hope he never stops writing this series because um, I'm hooked. I'm an addict. He is a Boston Globe best-selling fiction writer and author of 11 novels. His children call him a rock nerd. I can relate to that because of the time he spends studying ancient stone structures which he believes evidence pre-Columbus exploration of America. He's a graduate of Tufts University and Georgetown Law School. He's appeared as a guest expert on documentaries airing on the History Channel, Travel Channel, PBS, and Discovery Channel. And six of his eight books in his Templars in America series have been Amazon Kindle, Kindle top ten bestsellers. He lives in Westford, Massachusetts with his wife, sculptor Kimberly Scott, you can find him at www.davidbrodybooks.com, and his books are also on my website. Um, if you go to the I Highly Recommend section, they're all there, and that will link you directly to Amazon, or you can go directly to Amazon, um, whatever, whatever, whatever suits your fancy. Um, they are amazing reads, and I think what I love most about this series is that all of the artifacts that he uses as as um, as hints and clues to solving the the problems of the characters that he has created are actual 
um, are actual artifacts that have been found in this country and elsewhere. And without knowing it, you're learning a lot more about um, the history of America. The photographs in his books are actual photographs of the artifacts, um, many of them supplied by Scott Walter. And uh, they, they educate and amaze you as well as entertaining you. And I have found in my many years as an educator that the best way to educate is to entertain and slip in the facts when no one's looking. And that's exactly what he's done. And it's brilliant and it's fun and the character development is amazing so welcome to the show david oh barbara thank you that's a wonderful introduction (laughs) i hope i can live up to it but i'm really happy to be here and spend a couple hours with you tonight oh i'm looking forward to it too i just how did you ever get the idea to present um the facts with a story to educate the public i think it's fabulous so you mentioned, I think, in my introduction, the introduction that I'm a lawyer by trade, and so um, one of the things I started doing about 20 years ago was writing legal thrillers, fictional novels in the in the uh, genre of, say, John Grisham or Scott Turow. And I'd written three of them, and I was looking around for an idea for a fourth novel, a legal thriller. And my daughter mm-hmm. uh, was in fourth grade at the time and came home from school one day and said. Daddy, I just learned who discovered America before Christopher Columbus. And I said, oh, you mean the Vikings? He said, no, no, after the Vikings were before Columbus. And she told me the story, a local legend of Prince Henry Sinclair and the Westford Knight. We live in the town uh-huh. Westford, Massachusetts, north of, northwest of Boston. And she told me the story, and I'd never heard it before, but it's a local legend. We had just moved to town a couple of years earlier. And so I climbed the hill to go see the site and went to the library to read about it. And uh, that was about 12 years ago, and I went down that rabbit hole, and I'm still <laughs> down there 12 years later in desperate need of a change of clothes and uh, in a, you know, a, a shower, um, but I'm still down there ferreting around and finding all this really fun information, these, these artifacts, these sites that indicate a whole area of hidden history that we weren't taught in schools. And I, when I read, I love to read historical fiction. I, 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 like you said, mm-hmm. the best way to, to teach something is to entertain people and then slip in the facts when they're not looking, right? That's, that's, a, that's a fun way. So that's what I like to read. And so I thought, you know what? Instead of writing a legal thriller, this is such a fabulous story, I'm going to write um, historical fiction. And uh, one novel turned into another, and I'm amazed that eight books later there's still enough material to keep writing. But there's a, there's so oh much gosh, out there yeah. that we just haven't, you know, we and I could I could probably write another eight still. Hopefully I can. Um, but there's so much out there, and it's fascinating, and um, and I have I have so much fun with it. It's it's a real passion of mine, and I just love to do the research and I love to do the writing, and I'm 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 glad that people like yourself appreciate them. That means a lot to me. Well, well, you know, I have to admit I fact checked you a lot in the first couple ah. of books, and well, it, you know, it it. I, I guess I could be called a rock nerd too because I am, yeah. you know, into into all of the the stone structures and stuff like that. And you've done fabulous work on this stuff. You you, you are definitely a rock nerd, no doubt about it, Barbara. <laughs> Wear that badge well, proudly. <laughs> I I actually do, and and you know it's 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 wonderful that that somebody um i know when scott walter did he did a very brief he 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 did a one of his in his series he did a very short um one on a couple of kids that had discovered a chamber that really looked like it was more like a um you know uh 
an initiation chamber for probably the Masons or something like that. It wasn't the stone chambers that are around here or that are at, are at American Stonehenge. And America's Stonehenge is a fabulous place to go. It's, it's, it's got everything in one stop, but, but it's also thrilling to travel around New England and to see these stone chambers and stone walls just you know, at the side of the road or people using them as garages or, or, or places to put their garbage cans or, or, or to follow a stone wall two miles into a, a forest and find chambers there with upright stones and all sorts of things. I mean, I, I think one of the things that, that, um, that we said in the documentary that we did was that America has the largest collection of stone edifices in the world. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows about it, right? And they're they're hidden in plain sight. I mean, we 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 drive by these things all the time, like you said. They're part of our landscape, but and and I I think it's a, I think it's a function of the internet that is allowing people like you and me to start to look at these things not as individual mysteries, but as pieces to a larger puzzle. And so that we can say, oh, I've got an artifact like that in the town I grew up in. and Oh, I have one in my town. and Oh, I know about another one. And all of a sudden you're having this ability to link 8 or 10 or 12 or 15 artifacts together. And you say, wait a second, there's more than just a one-off here. There's a pattern forming. I think you told me you oh, grew up in, yeah. in Rotten, Connecticut, right? Did I have that correctly? Um, no, near, no near, Westchester. Near... Westchester. Okay. I thought you no, told me you, you, you explored the Gunjuan site a little bit. Oh, yeah. Patrick, Patrick yeah, okay. and I did. Yeah, yeah. we uh, we we went on a private trek, and I didn't okay. realize yeah. we were we were going to be marching for miles, and you know, not always on a trail. And and it was sort of like I I hadn't exactly prepared for it. You know, I I thought there might be trails, and you know, we it, I figured it would be like America's Stonehenge, <laughs> not quite. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's, it's a longer trek, but but that site that's one of those sites where for a long time, people studied that site and never connected it to, for example, America Stonehenge or to the chambers in the Hudson River Valley. Or and, and, and now it's like, well, wait a second, we have similar things scattered around in Vermont, Calendar 2 site. Mm-hmm. And these are, these are different sites, but they're related. And, and it's one thing to have one, but now because of the beauty of the Internet and, and email and, 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 and podcasts like this, we can now communicate with one another so much more quickly that it's a lot easier to solve these mysteries and start to see the patterns. And, I, and people say, well, yeah. well, why, why did I learn about this you know, 20 years ago? Well, until the Internet came around, there really wasn't a way for researchers like ourselves to communicate. And, and that's the beauty of what, the age we live in today is the information well, one is of the- just so easy. One of the cool things that, that we found out, Patrick, um, you know, passed away way too early. And one of the things we had just discovered, and, and I have not followed up on, but I hope somebody does, um, a number of years ago, it was either um, Yale New Haven or it was the University of Connecticut, Connecticut. They have LIDAR pictures of the area so that you can actually see the stone walls that are there or the ones that are remaining anyhow. And um, we never, we never um, were able to uh, make that connection, but apparently someone said that that they actually even did appear to, um, to be parts of pictographs of some sort. 
I bet that's a guy, a guy named Vance Teedy, who's a professor at Yale. I bet he's the one. He's a he's an expert on Gunji Wamp. I bet that I bet that's his work. I bet that's what you're talking about there, because he's done a lot of work uh, on that site. And uh, like I said, he's part of the fac. I believe he's part of the faculty at Yale. Um, so that wouldn't surprise yeah, me. if I mean- that's where that comes. It, it was kind of like you know, it, it going in the dead of summer to these chambers and, and the stone walls is is almost you know, it, it's just not safe <laughs> um, because <laughs> of all the underbrush and everything. So so you know you have a short period of time in the fall and a short period of time in the spring when it's it's much easier to get to them and to follow the stone walls and uh, it, it this just, is actually the time, and there this were, is actually the time of year. Yeah, right right about now. But oh, you know, yeah. we had some snow couple of days ago, but this is the time of year when it's probably the best time to do it. Well, we're coming up on the winter solstice, too. So, um, you know, the 21st oh, of December, I think. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, it's kind of like um, you just, you, you see these chambers and you, you say, okay, so what were they for? And nobody's come up with an explanation that in any way, shape, or form really satisfies me, except um, they're now, um, I've seen a lot of documentaries on how the pyramids in Egypt and, and most of the pyramids um, were constructed of granite with, with uh, quartz crystal in it. And that's, that's great for radio signals and stuff like that. And there's a, there is a theory, there are many, but there's a theory that the Great Pyramids were really generators of some sort. And when you look at the rocks that are used in the stone walls and the stone chambers around, especially, you know, New England, it's mostly granite with quartz. And you you begin to wonder, were they used as a generator of some sort? Were they used for communication of some sort? Or, um, you know, not everything was was orientated to to the different seasonal sunrises and sunsets. But lots of them have... um, Magnetic anomalies in their in their entranceways. Um, nobody's yeah, yes, nobody's the, the done ones any in the research. Hudson River Valley, especially. Yeah. Yeah, but nobody's done any research in them. I mean, you can't find anybody that uh, that has done any sort of archaeological look at the the really really old stone walls. They they haven't dug down to see how tall they actually are. Um, if they've got a thousand years or so of of debris around them, they could be right. six to eight to twelve feet tall. Right, and that, what what you said me is is exactly right, which is why we were so excited when they finally did do some archaeological work at a chamber uh, near Boston in Upton, which everyone thought mm-hmm. was oh, it's you know it's it's a potato the, the colonists were using it as a root cellar to put their potatoes in and. And they did some something called luminescence testing, where they test the soil behind the rocks to determine when the last time was sunlight hit the soil. And they determined that this particular chamber, which everyone thought was colonial, actually predates the earliest colonial settlement in that area. So it can't be colonial. It's older than that. And so now we're left oh, yeah. with, okay, well, is it, is it Native American? And the Native Americans say... That's not us. We didn't build chambers like that. It's a special corbelling technique, and that's sort of unique to European uh, skill set, and it's not ours anyway. We don't put roofs on our chambers because we use them in sweat lodges and blah, blah, blah. And so now we're like, well, if it's not colonial and it's not Native American, who did it? And so finally mm-hmm. we have some hard science behind at least one chamber saying, you know what, it, it, it's some kind of other European settlers before the colonists who came here. And, 
you know, we got science behind it now, and that's exciting. But you're right. So few of these sites have been really studied. People just assume that, oh, oh the colonists built these stone walls. And, well, maybe they built some of them, but not all of them. I think it, it's your <laughs> documentary that talks about how it would have been impossible for them to build that many stone walls. There just wasn't enough of them. Yep, but I, I think I, I went back and I pulled out the script of, of the uh, Secrets of the Stones, and I think it said, Patrick said, um, if you allow one day of rest for every week and a three-month break for winter, um, the, pol- the colonists would have had to lay four miles a day, that's a third of a mile every hour, one oh, foot geez. every two seconds, for an average every day, for 250 years. Yeah, it's 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 you know it's unthinkable. So where <laughs> did it come from? Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Yeah. But, so where did all these things come from? And um, you know that uh, until we get people to actually focus on that and ask the question, we're obviously never going to get the answers until we ask the question first. So that's the most important thing. Where did these come from? Then we can start researching and studying them and, like you said, digging down and trying to do some archaeological work on them. But first we have to get people to realize that there's a mystery here that needs to be solved. And it's exciting to be actually be part of a growing wave of people who are interested in solving these mysteries. Well, you know, I had Patrick lived, we were going to try to um, to – get some sort of um, um, legal um, or, or, yeah, we were, we were going to try to, to get some sort of something passed with the government. If someone had one of these um, chambers on their property, if they maintained it, they got a cut on their property tax or something like that. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, like historical preservation. You get that if you have an old barn on your property, at least you do in Massachusetts. I don't know about other states. But, yeah, and you also get a tax break if you maintain your farmland and don't develop it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but this is, a kind of, this is definitely a kind of historic preservation, and there should be historic tax credits for these chambers as well as an old barn or whatever. Right? That's, a, that's a wonderful idea. Well, it just it, it made sense to us, and we were working up to trying to do that, but it was not something I was going to do alone. So, you know, I kind of stepped back and, and, you know, hoped that there was another generation of people that were going to start to, to draw the attention to the chambers because um, they weren't used as burials. They weren't used as um, root cellars because there was no cross-ventilation and they had no doors. Um, and, and somebody said they were birthing chambers for, for cattle oh. and sheep. That's, that's ridiculous. I mean, They're too narrow. And, the, the, the entrance ways are too narrow for, the, for cattle to get in there. Yeah, somebody, somebody said that, that, you know, you could, I don't know what chamber they had been in, but they said, oh, 20 or 30 people could comfortably sleep in this chamber. Now, I didn't see many that were that. I don't think I saw any that were that big. So, um no. I, I, you know, if and and I think I've been in. Well, I think there are about two hundred left, and I've probably been on into over a hundred of them that are right in in the area around where I live. Right, so, your your um, area has the most the largest cluster, and it's not even it's the question of the size of the chamber itself. It's the it's the entryway, the passageway that gets you into the chamber. There's no, they're not even wide enough for a wheelbarrow. So people will say, oh, they were, they were used for, you know, farming. Well, no, you would have to have a wheelbarrow go in there. They're not enough for a, a, a human, a man or a woman to walk 
um, upright in, so that makes no sense. It just people wouldn't do it that way. What they are is they're narrow and they're short because they are designed. A lot of them, as you know, to allow the sunlight to come in at different times of the year, whether it's a solstice or the equinox or the cross quarter day, and they have to have a low ceiling so that the sun hits at the right angle and, and whatnot. They're they're used to mark the changing of the seasons oftentimes. So, um, you know, we, we we have a general idea what we think they're for. Um, and that, uh, getting back to the Epson Chamber, that's why it was exciting to, to actually sort of get the archaeologists at their own game and say, hey, you guys that have now have, have to figure out uh, exactly what this is because you're the ones who concluded it's pre-colonial. So now what are we going to do? And the Native Americans well, are like, dis- disavowing it. So, so now you come the, up with an answer. Other, I know what I think it is. The, well, the other thing, too, there have been no, no artifacts of any sort found around any of them. There's no pot- pottery sh- shards or anything like that. And today, when you see the chambers, usually they are kind of built into a hill. But when they were originally built, I don't think they were built in hills. I think they stood above ground and that, that over, the, over the probably thousands of years, the ground has you know built up around them so that now they appear to be built into hills. But I don't think originally they were. Interesting. Yeah, that's but, a, oh. I, I read someplace once there was a, there was a formula, and I think it was, might have been from Dennis Stone at America Stonehenge that you know soil accumulates uh, so many inches per century. I forget what the number was, but you can you mm-hmm. can oftentimes determine how old a stone structure is by the amount of soil. You you, you alluded to that earlier when you talked about the stone walls by digging mm-hmm. down and seeing how deep they are below. That'll give you an idea of um, how how old the origin is based on how much soil has accumulated along the side of them. Well, and not, not only that, but if you look at the trees around these chambers, none of them are probably more than 100 years old. So that originally they may have, they may have stood above ground and without trees all around them because the, the Indians on a very regular basis, you know, did burn down sections of the forest to refertilize the soil and stuff like that. So they they may well have uh, have stood out on the on the um landscape a lot more than they do now. And uh, you, you know, you just sit back. So what is your theory? I, you know, you have a theory. What is it? My th- oh, on the chambers. So I think these, yeah. these chambers um, type, not, not the ones in America Stonehenge. I think that's older than this theory. But the the Upton Chamber and I think the ones uh, in the Hudson River Valley area and probably the Gunjewan site. I think they tie back to the Irish explorers made famous by the Brendan the Navigator legend. This is probably mm-hmm. sixth century, and the, the legend is that Saint Brendan uh, left the west coast of Ireland in a. In a, in a in a leather skin boat, a kurag, it's called. It was actually not much not much more elaborate than a than a, a beer barrel with a leather skin around it. But it turns out, um, uh, Irish uh, adventurer by the name of Tim Severin actually used one of these boats, and he did cross the Atlantic in the 1970s. He left from Ireland and landed in Labrador, so he proved it actually could have happened. But this Brendan the Navigator legend. Um, you know, it talks about where he went and what he saw and, and, and eventually ended up in, in the land of plenty, which could easily be America. Um, but, and mm-hmm. these chambers are very similar to a lot of the chambers that we see in the British Isles and particularly in Ireland. And there's a lot of evidence at the Gunjewan site in Connecticut, at the site I mentioned in Upton. Um, 
that the cluster of evidence, the cluster of dates, whether it's carbon dating or or uh, carvings on the rock, they all seem to date back to around the time period of Brendan the Navigator. So it may have been that Irish explorers made it across the Atlantic, say, 1,500 years ago. And um, yeah, that would be surprising, but it's not unique. I think that there's been other groups back and forth. I think that the idea that the Atlantic Ocean is a barrier instead of a highway is an incorrect conclusion. I think that many oh. groups of people over yeah. the centuries have come back and forth across you know, prior to the Vikings, prior to Columbus, obviously, and that the the, the Celts, the the and Brendan the Navigator and the Celts and the Irish may have been here and and and, and may have built many of these chambers. Well, it may have absolutely. Look at the um, copper mines in Minnesota and Michigan; they've been they've been mined for the last nine thousand years. So, right. So that goes um, back even earlier. To, you know, probably the Phoenicians, maybe the Minoans, yeah. but. Uh, the idea of bringing the, 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 in, in Europe, you needed uh, not only tin, which we know they got from the southern coast of England, but also copper mm-hmm. to make bronze. I mean, think of all the bronze weapons and artifacts and decorations and so much bronze. Well, Where did all the copper come from? It didn't come from right. Europe. It didn't come from known areas of Africa. They just didn't have enough of it. And the natives tell us that for centuries and even longer, um, People have been coming from across the ocean to get copper out of the Great Lakes, as you said. Oh, yeah. Lake Superior. And what's, Lake what's really cool is that they are able to take a look at the um, quality of the copper and be able to tell you what part of the world it came from. And a great deal of copper that they found in Phoenicia and uh, Sicily and certainly Rome um, does date back to North America. There's a famous shipwreck off the coast of Turkey um, called the Uluburu shipwreck, I believe, and that copper, people are pretty sure, goes back to Lake Michigan just based on the purity. And it's a Phoenician shipwreck, as you said, um, and so it dates back about 3,000 years ago. Um, But again, that level of purity is only found in Lake Michigan. So experts are fairly certain that copper came from the Great Lakes. And, uh, but it, you know, it's the type of thing we we see evidence like that, and yet it just sort of doesn't doesn't register. People don't really know how it fits into the established timeline, and so it just sort of gets ignored and discarded as if it's uh, as if it didn't exist at all. And one one of the things that, one of the things I think I bring to the table as a as a lawyer, as a trained lawyer, is you know we're trained to evaluate and weigh and analyze evidence. And I'm not allowed to just take a piece of evidence and say, oh, we're going to ignore this because it doesn't fit our theory of the case. We're going to make believe this doesn't <laughs> exist. That's not the way it works. I'm, I'm sorry. If you, know, if you ignore it, your opponent is going, to, is going to hit you over the head with it. You can't just ignore the evidence. If there's a piece of evidence that's against your case, you have to somehow figure out a way. You have to either, either rethink your case or you need to somehow figure out a way to explain it. You can't just say, uh, put your head in the sand and say, I'm not going to look at that, again, because your opponent will. And so what do we do about this evidence of Michigan copper on a Phoenician shipwreck in the Mediterranean? There has to be an explanation for it. Well, I know what my explanation is. I think it shows that they were here taking copper. To me, that's the obvious one. Um, oh, yeah. And, and you know, that ties and, into that. That's the America Stonehenge. I think that's, that's, those are the people, I think, who, and I know you had Dennis Stone on your show the other night. Those are the people, mm-hmm. I think, who 
responsible for building the, the site up in southern New Hampshire, the America Stonehenge site. I think they were on their way to the Great Lakes. They stopped off near the coast in southern Massachusetts, uh, southern New Hampshire, on the on the way um, up the Merrimack River from Massachusetts, and and they built this site as a stopover point before they continued west to get the copper and bring it back to Europe. That's one heck of a stopover place, and yeah, it's and, amazing. And actually, it's amazing it spot. is. Is there is there any large body of water near um, near that area? The Merrimack River they... comes within six within six miles of America Stonehenge, and Dennis tells me that in in you know three thousand years ago, water levels were different. It would have been there would have been a tributary taking you from the Merrimack River to the base of the hill that America Stonehenge sits on. So it would have been navigable. But even six miles, even if that's you know even if there wasn't another small stream or whatever. Six miles is, is not too far to, to to traipse if you're looking for the perfect site. Um, you know, oh, you yeah. want the hill, you want what you need to and I'm sure and look look, look let's 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 not um, put our heads in the sand ourselves. Obviously whoever came over back then would have had to have somehow arranged some kind of safe passage with the natives, some kind of treaty, some kind of alliance. And the natives mm-hmm. may have said, you know, you can use this land here. You know, we, we understand you want to be close to the river here. Here's some land that you can use. We'll leave you alone. Um, I'm, you know, I don't think that the Phoenicians could have just chosen whatever land they wanted. They had to sort of negotiate it with the Native Americans. And so that site makes perfect sense. And it also is a fascinating site because on the summer solstice sunrise, you know, these people we think were, were sun worshippers. They were worshippers of the sun god Baal. And so the summer solstice was the most important day of the year. That's the day when the sun is at its most bright and longest day of the year. So the summer solstice is the most important day for a sun worshiper. And on the sunrise, you can sit at the center of the America Stonehenge site and and look at the sun coming up on the horizon. And, and of course, it lines up on one of these massive standing stones. And that's how we that's how they were able to mark the sunrise. But if you could imagine yourself on a, on a magic carpet. And if you're sitting in the middle of the America Stonehenge site looking at the sun, and you got on your magic carpet, and you took that magic carpet along the sunbeam to the horizon, at some point you'd cross the Atlantic Ocean, and you would pass through the arches at Stonehenge in England. So yeah, that is quite amazing. Is it's amazing. It, puts, it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. My theory has always been that they reverse-engineered the site in New Hampshire to line up on the summer solstice sunrise with the site in England, because they knew how important that site was. It was also a sun-worshipping site, and so that they reverse-engineered the site in New Hampshire, and that's why they picked that location. They needed to have them in line on the summer solstice sunrise, and that site in New Hampshire was. And so I think well, that's why they you, chose if, if you look around at the trees in that area, too, they're all new growth, so that there must have been a time when it was, cleared or there wasn't the overwhelming i mean i just i got hit by a tornado earlier this year and i lost two oak trees and both of them were over 100 years old now i i i could just just barely put my i I couldn't put my arms around them and my fingertips touch and if you look at the forest that so many of these stone chambers and stone walls and even america's stonehenge they're young trees they're not old that's not old growth there at all. Right. So it's important for a site like America Stonehenge, which is a massive site, and for those of your listeners who have never been there, essentially there's a ceremonial center, and then looking out to the horizon in various directions, 
there are standing stones, maybe 50 yards, 100 mm-hmm. yards out to the distance, um, and, and, and the sunrises and sunsets on the equinoxes and the solstice and the cross-quarter days line up with these different things. But obviously, if there's tree growth, none of this works. It doesn't make any sense. You can't see anything. 3,000 right. years ago, 3,500 years ago, when we think that site was built, there, there was, it was still too close to the ice age. There wasn't enough soil on the ground to support mm-hmm. large trees. You could have some brush and, 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 and smaller trees, but it wasn't, there wasn't enough soil to support a thick forest. And so you could have seen these boulders on the horizon, even with the tree growth back then. Today now, mm-hmm. Dennis and his crew has to clear these trees regularly because you know, it's been three or 4,000 years since then and there's more soil. But back then, oh, yeah. there, wouldn't have, there wasn't forest there. So your point about the tree growth is really important. That helps us to date that site. There's no reason that yeah. – there's no way that site makes any sense if it was built, say, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, whatever. The tree growth would have been so high, you wouldn't have been able to see anything. <laughs> it wouldn't have bothered. Yeah. So, uh, so that's an important clue as well. Well, I think also, have you, have you seen any of the balanced rocks? That are in the area. Uh, many of them, yeah. There's there's a great one down uh, again in the Hudson River. Uh, what's the name of that town? I, I believe it's in is it New Salem. Is it? Um, there's a fascinating one yeah. right on the side of the road, and and there's one in actually there's one in up near me in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, Phaeton yeah. Rock. Um, and these are out, these are outstanding. These are I, I, this is the one that really gets me when people say, oh, the glaciers left these these massive <laughs> boulders. The boulders are about the size of a school bus sometimes, and they left them perched on these three little rocks about the size of your fist, and they, just, and they balance perfectly. Like, like, like nature actually works that way. No, 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 no. That's not how nature works. Nature likes chaos. Yeah, yeah. That's not how things work. But you know, somehow the ancient people somehow arranged these boulders to sit and balance on these tiny little rocks. I mean, it's just fascinating. It's, it's almost awe-inspiring to go see these things. Um, it is. I, I know when we were doing Secrets, we were talking about Standing Stones, and I said to Patrick, have you ever seen one? And he said no, and I said, well, before we go writing about it, I think we ought to see one. And there's one in a national forest, and it's up, it's north of me. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure exactly where it was, but it was in, it's in a national forest. We walked in. The stone itself is bigger and heavier than a, than a locomotive, and it is wow. standing on just one itty-bitty little tip, and when you walk up to it, you can't believe that this thing is balanced. And I, I, I had a um, metal detector, and I said, you know, there got to be steel rods, rods through this or something. No, no iron, no nothing. And, you know, I, I went up, and he, Patrick said, don't knock it over. And I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> and I pushed on that thing. It was as sturdy as it could possibly be. And they're, they're all over the, the at least the Northeast. I don't know any other place, but and they they are balanced uh, like on two or three little stones. Or there are a number of them, and you just look at them and you say, "How could that possibly be? How could there's no magnetism there? There's no I, I mean the one we saw had had all sorts of graffiti all over it, so it had you know definitely stood the test of time for sure." But there's no explanation. And one of the other things with the stone chambers um, that I noticed, 
there most of them um animals had not you know made dens in them animals had not slept in them they they're basically pretty cleared out and there are no bugs in them i i saw no spiders i saw no ants i saw no animals at all in them hmm. and they had a feeling of um gosh how do i put this remember get smart when the cone of silence came down on, on them <laughs> sure yes i do that, that's what it feels like. It feels as though you well, are they, they definitely have a, from... They definitely have a spiritual feel to them. I, I agree with you on that. Um, let me just quickly hit the rewind button if it's okay, because I just was Googling. Sure. North, Sal- North Salem, which is in northern Westchester County, New York, has a, a very famous balanced rock, and it's, um, it's actually maintained by the Historical Society. It's very close to the side of the road. So if any of your yeah. listeners are in that area, but that's a fascinating one. Is that, is that close to where you are, Barbara? Yeah, I'm, I'm right in the middle of. Yeah, and and if anybody's in, if anybody's interested on my website on Secrets of the Stones, if you look at the sidebar, there are maps that have all of the chambers and all right. of the standing stones and all of the balanced rocks, uh, GPSed on it. And yeah, a lot of them even have that on your website. That, that's a great asset for people because many of them are. Are, are 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 easy to get to. I mean, some are deep in the woods, but many of them, like this one in North Salem, it's literally right on the side yeah. of the road. There's a parking area there, and you get out of your car and and you're ten feet away. It's amazing. So, um, and then, but but and you me. wouldn't know it unless you happen to go to some some place like your website, Barbara, and you can find them on that. Yeah, it, it's um, yeah, that was. I just thought, you know, there should be maps where people could find these things. So every time we went, I GPSed it and then I put it on the map and. Um, yeah, a lot of people have that, written and that's, that's and the, the one in North Salem, by the way. It's sixty tons. I mean, if you imagine how, 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 yeah. how that's that's bigger than any stone I think in the Great Pyramid. I mean, sixty tons is massive. So the idea that you know it just got dropped there, it, it's crazy. It, it, it defies explanation. Those those chambers. Well, the those largest the the largest stone in American Stonehenge is larger than and heavier than the largest stone in the Great Pyramid of Giza. Right. Yep, 40 tons, I believe, is what Dennis told me yeah. for that. And this one, this perch boulder is even bigger. It's 60 tons. It's about the size of a minivan. And uh, and yeah. I think there's some even bigger than that. So. I think what what really upsets me is that you know we have all of the when when they teach in school we're gonna we're gonna learn about antiquity and they go immediately to Egypt to Rome to Greece and you know they they ignore the fact that I, I think that a lot of the stuff here in this country is older than the Giza Plateau and yet they aren't teaching it in school and it just blows me away. Um, Graham Hancock, the uh, the author, is starting to talk about that. He's the first one I've heard really push that the the idea that the North American history may go back earlier than the European history and the Mediterranean history. So he's the first one who's sort of pushing that now. There there have been whispers that have got excuse me, gotten louder and louder and louder that, that it goes back ten, twelve thousand years. So that, well, yeah, that would that, be... it really can't go back further because that, that brings you, you know, I think 11,600 years ago is when people sort of recognize that the, the Ice Age ended. So it can't really go back mm-hmm. further than that because we most of the country was under ice or a large part of the continent was under ice. But, yeah, if you start going back to then and then you start getting back to the things, you know, to Atlantis and, and 
some kind of advanced civilization in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, and again, Graham Hancock's done a lot of work on that, and, and I've done some research on it as well. So that's, a, that's another whole conversation. But, but somebody, you know, left evidence of doing all these things. You know, who was it? Was it in advance? People like to talk about uh, alien civilizations. I like to say we don't need alien civilizations. I think we had <laughs> an advanced civilization here on Earth. I think, I think the Atlantean civilization could have done a lot of the things we talk about. We don't necessarily need aliens. We've got, we have potentially, we have an advanced civilization of humans. So let's look at them before we start talking about aliens. I mean, you know, like I can't oh, yeah. say one or the other right and wrong, but, but I like to think of if the, if the Atlantis legends are true, that would explain some of this technology um, without having to resort to an alien visitation of any kind. Well, when you look at uh, a lot of the hieroglyphs and some of the pyramids, they have electric bulbs there. They have batteries. They found batteries that, that are working batteries with cables and everything else. That I forget what that was. Yeah, I, I forget what that was carbon dated, but it went way back. I mean, I think what, what so many people, you know, when they're talking about quote-unquote antiquity, they are assuming that those people didn't have the same brain capacity that we have today and they did and so why was it not conceivable that that they would do of course they took a long time inventing the wheel you gotta you gotta wonder what was wrong with them with that i mean come on <laughs> that's a good point and uh, yeah um the um the brain capacity thing yeah they had the same capacity but they also had um a lot more which a necessity is a mother of invention. They were desperate for these technologies more than we were, so they had more incentive, I guess, is what I'm looking for, more incentive to try to figure some of this stuff out. Um, and, and when we think about things like navigation, I always like They looked at the stars, you know, way more often than we do. We, we watch TV or, mm-hmm. or spend our time on the computer. At night, they would look at the stars and study the stars. And so, of course, they know more about celestial navigation than we do they spent more time on it and we shouldn't be surprised that they were able to navigate by the stars even if we can't do it today doesn't mean they were smarter than <laughs> us or we were smarter than them but they just spent more well, time practicing so there you go well the, and the vikings had their moonstones so that they could see even when it was cloudy they could they could see where right. the sun was and stuff like that so right. um yeah i i think that and the Chinese were here. Come on, there's a wall in, in California that they swear the Chinese built way long time ago. And, um, no, I, I just, I, I am grateful to see that that scientists are stepping back and saying, well, maybe. I mean, I, I firmly believe that there were giants around. <gasps> and uh, and I know that there's a, there's a big thing now that, that some of the mounds and things like that where where they found the bones of giants, some of them, the giants were actually built underneath the mounds and then the mound was built on top of them or chambers that were, you know, too too small for a giant. But there, there were, that's why I, I, I would love them to see, you know, ground-penetrating radar going underneath some of these chambers because there may well be something there. There may be nothing there, but there may be something there and nobody's looked. Um, you know, it's funny because I think I think people did look. Um, like the Smithsonian spent a lot of time looking in the 1800s. We talked about the giants and the giant bones. 
they spent a lot of time uh, documenting and, and excavating these these sites that were supposedly quote unquote giant bones, and they took them all back to Washington, and of course they're gone. Like where, where are all the bones? Like you're the Smithsonian Institute. <laughs> your one job is to save stuff. That's your job. Okay, you we you take you take the the artifacts from the country and you put them in your museum and you save them but now they're all gone and so like there's there's evidence that they have all they at one point had these giant bones eight or nine feet long human beings and and yet it's mm-hmm. all gone and so you know people at one point did look for these and it's interesting documentation again right within the smithsonian records you don't need to rely on outside sources this is smithsonian's own writings about these bones that they find and that's another whole mystery this whole idea that they were oversized humans running around North America. Um, the Native Americans tell us that's what happened, and we've got lots of evidence from the Smithsonian. There's, I think somebody counted 1,500 newspaper mm-hmm. articles from the 1800s uh, documenting uh, quote-unquote giant human skeletons found by farmers uh, You know, as they came across the country starting to clear the land and these burial mounds. They would dig down looking for you know, grave artifacts that might have been buried with the bones. And the story is always similar, that they, they, they find these giant bones, they bring the, the surgeon and the judge of the town out mm-hmm. to document them, and they all sign affidavits, and the Smithsonian comes and takes the bones away, and that's as far as it goes. And no one ever quite, you know, eventually the bones decay because they're, they didn't have climate control back then. But, you know, there's a mystery there. And when we, when we think well, about were... that, I'm sorry, go ahead. Wasn't there a curator at the, at the Smithsonian that his job was to make sure that there was no evidence of, of anything pre-Columbus? And, and so he never wanted heard to that. keep it. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise oh, yeah. me. I've never heard that. I've never heard oh, that. Oh, gosh, I know that yeah. There, there's definitely a, um, yeah, there's definitely a, a conspiracy. group of, <laughs> uh, conspiracy. I, think, I don't think it's a conspiracy as much as it is as people have a vested interest in protecting their the status quo. I mean, once you make a statement, if you're a professor at a university and you make the statement, nobody was here before Columbus, and then it turns out there might have been, you're going to fight to keep that evidence quiet because you don't want egg on your face, right? So yeah, that's that's it's not a conspiracy as much as it's, it's just covering your ass. You know, it's human nature. You just don't want to you don't want to be embarrassed professionally. Um, but getting back to the giants for a second, you know, we have. A ra- we have races of undersized humans, pygmies or whatnot, in in in, in the wilds of uh, of Africa or Asia or the Amazon, three and a half foot size human beings, a whole race of them. So why shouldn't we have the opposite, uh, you know, a race of eight and a half foot size humans, either today, which we don't have, but at one point running around, it's sort of the opposite end of that same bell curve. And again, nature nature likes that kind of balance. And so mm-hmm. I'm not talking 15 feet tall, tall, tall humans. I'm just talking eight and a half or nine feet, you know, significantly taller than what we're used to, just as the pygmies are significantly shorter than we're used to. Um, it, it shouldn't surprise us. The Bible talks about it, of course. And, again, the Native Americans talk about it. And we find evidence of it throughout the, the annals of the Smithsonian. And um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's nothing wrong with it. I mean, just, it's, just, it's, just one of those, it's just one of those pieces of history that for some reason people don't want to acknowledge. And it doesn't, it shouldn't, well, doesn't change anything. It doesn't hurt anybody to have this, but let's look at it. It's interesting. It's, curi- it's, you know, it's a curiosity. It's, it's fascinating in some ways. So. Well, look at the red-haired giants in Nevada. I exactly. mean, that story is, is 
legendary. I mean, it's Indian lore that they chased the the red-haired giants into a cave and that they built smoke and they killed them all and they fought them. And and a hundred or so years later, when people went in to dig the guano, they found spearheads and then they found the bones of the the red-haired giants. They found them. So, and, and I've always I've always had a theory, and I can't prove it, but this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the Phoenicians coming to America to mine copper. So mm-hmm. Phoenicians, uh, ancient Phoenicia is what we now know today as modern Lebanon, and the Bible, the, the race of giants that are in the Bible, that's where they lived, in the foothills of Lebanon. So if you're a Phoenician um, sea captain and you're going across the Atlantic to get copper, you're going to bring your biggest, strongest guys to carry the copper out, to mine the copper. So I've always mm-hmm. wondered if the Phoenicians brought some of the giants, quote-unquote, with them on these transatlantic journeys, and that some of them ended up staying, intermarrying with the natives here in North America, and that itself became the tribe of North American giants. You know, that huh. I was thought that, And there's evidence is a, something called the Grave Creek uh, Tablet, which I, I'm guessing you and Mark Eddy have talked about before. Um, there's mm-hmm. um, uh, Phoenician writing and, 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 the, and the bones of a seven-and-a-half-foot um, king uh, in, in, that, in that burial mound. So there's evidence that ties sort of the Phoenicians and the giants and the copper culture all together. So that, that's one of the possibilities also. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's really the more you look at it. I wanted to go back to... Um, American Stonehenge too, to point out that that the whole the whole um, complex there is really built on a huge outcropping of rock. So yes, so that's um, another reason why the trees haven't grown, you know, couldn't grow back then. Yes. Yeah. And and yeah, and, and New, um, New Hampshire has. I mean, New Hampshire has a lot of rock. New Hampshire is called the Granite State because <laughs> there's so much granite there. You know, there's there's a lot of rock there, but. Um, that that made sense as a spot if you're going to build uh if you're going to do something like having standing stones off to the horizon you want to be on top of bedrock so the trees don't grow you know that makes sense mm-hmm. I think it's a good spot to pick for something like that oh gosh yeah and uh yeah. well and you know one of the major crops here in New England is rocks um we got lots of them <laughs> but but they they it, it, for anyone who lives in the Northeast, who uh, and and I want to go back to the Giants just briefly on my website. I have a huge section. I have several hundred articles on Giants that are newspaper articles and things like that that um, that, that I put together. So there's hundreds of those. If you if you really want to, I mean, it goes all the way back to the Bible, actually. Um, right, and, and, and so, a lot of those are reputable. You know, it's the New York Times. It, it's you know, these are reputable newspaper accounts from the 1800s, probably. Right, talking mm-hmm. about how yeah. farmers Most of find them, yeah. these. You know, and again, they're not. We're not talking 15 feet, feet fivefold farm, but we're talking eight, nine, maybe ten feet. Right, that, that's what we're talking. Yeah, and you know, they there there's an article there where where they uncovered literally a battlefield, and most of the bones were. Um, were large, you know, seven, eight, nine feet in there, in there. I mean, and and, and they've also, to, to be fair to the little people, there are places where there are mass graves of little people as well. I mean, why would you not expect to have that divergence in the population? I right. mean, not everybody is. Yeah. yeah, 
and and yeah, that's, that's so the bell, that's the bell curve that nature likes. Yeah. Yeah, and it it just no. I will grant you. You know, in where was it? Uh, in Europe, it was a big deal for the nobilities to have a midget to follow them around and stuff like that. But um, genetically, it ha- I mean, if if they have proven that genetically little people, you know, it's a genetic thing, why not the same with the, with the giants? Why do they have to be Nephilim or Anunnaki? Why why can't they just be? It's a genetic thing, and this is the way they were born. You know, it doesn't right. well, have to be a myth. It, it, but it also could, yeah, be, not, it could be like a racial thing. There could just be a, a tribe of, you know, a tribe of giants. So it doesn't have to be a genetic defect of any kind. It just could be like a, a uh, that's not what you're saying. I'm sorry, I misunderstood. You're, what you're saying is the same nope. thing I'm saying, which is they could just have a, yeah. there could just be a, a, a tribe of people who are naturally that much taller. We have that in, in Africa today. There's a tribe, there's a lot of the men are six and a half, seven feet tall. It's um, just yeah. a genetic trait. But in this case, it'd be even taller. So, yeah, what you say makes makes perfect sense. I mean, let's face it, if I am, I mean, I'm 5'3", I'm closer to a little people than a big people, but if I am six feet high, tall, I am going to look for somebody who's even my height or bigger to have as a partner. And then you've got two tall people having a child who most probably is going to be pretty tall as well. So yes. so it's natural it's it's natural selection. If tall people gather together because they're tall and, you know, they don't want to talk down to someone, I mean, it it could be just that simple. It doesn't have to be Now, I will grant you that there are also cases of double rows of teeth and extra digits and stuff like that, but That's another but whole the only thing, yeah. yeah, I mean, the only thing you can really prove is, you know, if I'm really, really tall, I'm going to look for somebody who's tall to be my partner. Um, and, and so, so it's, 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 it's your, 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 your kind of, it's, it's not a breeding thing. It's just, you know, thanks. I'll take somebody, you know, if I'm six and a half feet high, frankly, I'm not going to look at somebody who's five feet tall and say, Oh, we're a perfect match. Unless he's got a big chair. I mean, you know, it's just not going to happen. And and we do have examples. I think his name is Robert Walding. I could have that room correct, but he was eight foot eleven. He lived in Chicago at the turn of the century, the turn of the twentieth century. He was eight foot eleven, and so we do have examples of humans, you know, pushing nine feet. And he was still growing by the by the way at the time he died. So um, oh. anyway, the, the whole giant thing. One of my novels is called The Oath of Nimrod, and I, and I yep. get deep into the giants and that whole myth and. Uh, um, it was it was it was a fun. Re- Again, one of the things I never thought I'd be researching. If you'd said to me 20 years ago, "You're going to research giants," I'd be like, "What? No, what are you talking about?" <laughs> but I, I sort of got into this thing because of there's some interesting um, uh, symbolism in Freemasonry, and it ties back to Nimrod was a was a uh, you know of course a biblical figure built the Tower mm-hmm. of Babel, but it turns out he himself was a giant, and so that's how I first started getting into this and. And there's something called the Oath of Nimrod in, in Masonic ritual. And I thought, well, that's weird. Why do the Freemasons, why are they, why are they sort of basing their ritual on Nimrod? Because Nimrod was a pagan. Well, that, that opens a whole other can of worms. Like, so what's the, what are the Freemasons doing with Nimrod and hiding the giants? And it just keeps, you just, every time I go down these rabbit holes, I, I tend to find the Templars and the Freemasons, and it's, a, you know, the usual suspects. But, um, well, it's it's interesting because in the in the Bible, um, 
are you familiar with Strong's Concordance um, for biblical Not, research? Uh, what, no, I don't think what so. This, if you explain it, I've never okay, heard of it. But what ahead. this guy Strong did back in the 1800s, he decided that, that the Bible should be researched in that when a word appears, they took it back to the original language and the original time frame and explained what this what that word meant then. Okay. For for instance, for instance, um, when they were were, were writing um, uh, about the heavens, the word they used for heaven in the original form really meant sky. So they've they've done that with every word in the Bible, and it's fascinating to go back and see what the original meaning of the word was in the language that it was written in, whether it was Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever. The same guy did um, a strong um, cyclopedia, and in that it talks about giants, and it was naturally assumed at that time frame that the writing of the Bible and everything was going on, that there were giants. And one of them was um, Noah. One of them was St. Patrick. There were a number of giants in the Bible that were just, you know, it was not a big deal. They were just giants. It's kind of like saying I'm Italian or I'm Norwegian. It was like I'm a giant. <laughs> you, you know, it wasn't It wasn't the big deal that it is. You, you know, when you look at our frame of reference and their frame of reference, it's so totally different that you have to expect there are going to be misconce- misconceptions as to um you know, what was actually meant by what was said and what well, language it was it, said in. Part of it is just a terminology. Does giant mean eight or nine feet or does it mean 15 feet? And I think that that's where we went into a little bit of trouble because I think sometimes people say giants and they're, they're picturing, you know, uh, some kind of mythical three, you know, uh, t- taller than the trees, and that's not what we're talking because th- there is something called the, um, well, just the, just the basis of the physiology of the human body you can't you you can't grow beyond a certain height and still have the skeletal mass to support the weight that mm-hmm. you need. It, um, so well, yeah. I think every time every time you double the height, you triple the weight. So at a certain point, you just collapse upon yourself. And I think that well, that quite, point quite. is somewhere around the nine or nine and a half foot yeah, mark. Yeah, quite, quite possibly. Paul Paul Bunyan did not exist. Probably. <laughs> Right, but again, to get back, just to, to put a bow on all this, the the idea of of nine foot a race of nine foot giants um, seems to me to be very plausible, and there's a lot of evidence to support it, um, both in in Lebanon and in, in the biblical terms, and also mm-hmm. in North America, according to a lot of the Cherokee legends and a lot of the Smithsonian bones and and all those newspaper articles that you cite on your website and there's a lot of evidence mm-hmm. to support that kind of stuff. Well, you know, like I like I said, I'm five three. Somebody who's six eight is a giant to me. Yes, yes. And so, people of so, course were much shorter back in biblical times too. So you know you yeah. at five three would have been considered a tall for a woman back then. So you know that, that changes uh, a little I'm bit. An- then I'm the right, then I'm then I'm an anachronism and was born in the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> um one thing that that um you know that i I was kind of curious about when you and, and I want to go I want to just kind of touch a little bit on your series of books because they are so good. If you want to learn about some of the artifacts that are absolutely out there and validated and dated and and speak of other cultures and other time frames that that happened here in North America, these books are just a joy to read. 
and they're 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 fabulous. Um, but one there of the a lot sites of fun that to you research too, let me tell you. Well, you know, there's one thing that you did avoid that I was um, kind of curious about, and that's Kincaid's Cave in the in the Grand Canyon. Did you did you kind of glaze over that and say, now nah, this won't work, or is, did that, you is think that the cave? That's the cave where, um, uh, in the, the the newspaper article in, in Arizona in the early 1900s, talks about um, uh, April 1st. Yeah. Yeah, um, I did talk about it a little bit in one of my. I think it was powdered gold, where my characters were out in Arizona and New Mexico. Um, that was one of those things. It was such a one-off. There was just no other evidence. Just remind me that the Kincaid's cave is that the one I think that had like Iranian or Persian artifacts in there. Remind me what it was had, in there. It was Egyptian and in, and Hindu, Egyptian. and it was Hindu. That was discovered. Hindu. Yeah, it was Hindu stuff. Yeah. Right. So in, I was yeah, it was India. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was discovered by a guy who was charting the Colorado River for the uh, Smithsonian, right. and he reported it. He and then they sent somebody out, and they took tons of artifacts from it, and. Um, then they have not. Then they, then researchers trying to find out about it. The Smithsonian said no, they never existed. They never had the artifacts. Um, David Childress tried to find out information. He was shut down. Scott Walter tried to um, investigate Why? it, and yeah. he finally he chartered a helicopter, and they he found that the airspace was um, prohibited. And yeah. and so you know it it is another one of those cool mysteries that we maybe never will know the truth to. But the time that this cave was, um, I guess, carved, if you want the word, or or I guess the cave was already there and that it, it was utilized. The, the level of the Colorado River was high enough so that you could kind of boat right up to it. But the right, cave is right. big enough to hold twenty thousand people. It's huge. So I, so I so I did write about this a little bit in my powdered gold novel, which is the third in the series. But I didn't go too deep into it, just because. First of all, I, I, I haven't seen it myself, so I, I like to write about sites I've actually seen and artifacts I've seen. Oh yeah. Because you know it's it, more immediate. But I, I'm just not sure what to make of it. Like I, it's such a such an amazing story, and yet there's there's no other sites or artifacts that tie back to, you know, Iranian or Hindu or Indian. Um, you know, artifacts well, in, this, in this country, and so it was such a, it's such an outlier. Which is not to say it's not legitimate, but I just didn't know how to tie it into anything else in the story. Well, I think what 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 I found amazing was that there was a Hindu god there, but then there were also mummies, and there were also giants. So it it was like, it, it was a mix of cultures that was right. You know, stupefying. So similar to Burroughs Cave in that way, like like an eclectic group of you know. It's a little bit of something for everybody, so yeah. Well, Burroughs Cave, theoretically, he got gold stuff out, but but um, you just, I think all you can see are the replicas. The the actual artifacts are no longer there, are they? Um, I have some of the artifacts. Scott Walter and I together purchased a, a batch of them about seven eight years ago, and so I have. He has more than I do, but we both have some artifacts that were quote-unquote original Burroughs Cave artifacts, whether they were authentic or not, I don't know, but they came from the cave. Now, again, how old they are and, and you know, how, how they got to the cave, I, I, I'm not sure, but I do have some of the artifacts, and as does Scott. 
And Scott spent a lot of time studying them. Uh, and for your mm-hmm. listeners who may not know, this is a cave in Illinois that was discovered by a gentleman by the name of Russell Burroughs, and I believe in the 1970s or 80s. And it was a really an eclectic collection of artifacts, most of which seem to date back to around the first century A.D., and most of the cultures were Mediterranean cultures, but they weren't all the same. So mm-hmm. there was Egyptian, there was Greek, there was Hebrew, there was African, there was all different kinds of artifacts, but they all seemed to come from people who lived in the Mediterranean during that time period. And so the theory is, you know, maybe some one of these, one of these uh, Phoenician trading uh, ports or harbors that they had to flee for whatever reason, and then everyone jumped on a boat and brought their own artifacts, and the ended up in the Gulf of Mexico and came up the Mississippi River and eventually ended up in, in Illinois on something called the Ambaras River and, uh, mm-hmm. and that they brought all their things with them. It's an f- interesting story. But again, the, the collection of artifacts is so eclectic. There's so many different cultures represented by it. It reminds me a little bit of what you said about the cave in the Grand Canyon where you have you know, Egyptian and you have Hindu and you have you know, giants, and it's like, well, wow, it's, yeah. like, it's, it's such a it's such a story, you know. But the Burroughs Cave thing is, um, I, I got a phone call the other, a couple weeks ago from a, a woman um, who was part of a family uh, that owned land who made it sound like, that, you know, that they owned the farmland that the cave was on and that they were keeping it secret. But she happened to stumble upon one of my books and was reading about it and called me and said, you know, did you know that you're actually right, <laughs> and, and that we, we have this <laughs> land, and 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 we really do have this cave? And I was like, wow. And but they don't want to go public with it. But I think most of us have sort of come to the conclusion that that Russell Burroughs was less than forthcoming with his information. But that doesn't necessarily mean that um, the whole story gets thrown out. There might be pieces of truth to his story. And there might be some artifacts that are authentic that came out of that cave. Well, that's and and again, something that the kids aren't taught in school. And you know, you yeah, just, that, that, that's that's one I think that I, th- I think we're right not to teach that one. I think that one's still that's still an open question. I mean, we can teach it as a as a it's a fascinating you know study in what if. It's a fascinating uh, lesson for young historians to, to to take a look at it and say, okay. What do you think? Is is this true? Is it possible? Is it just a is it is it a hoax? What do you guys think? And it, it's a fun um, case study in that sense, and and a really good exercise for for young historians to use their critical thinking and analytical skills to try to determine what might have happened there. But um, well, I wouldn't look, want to teach it look, as accurate history yet. Look at Prince Henry Sinclair. I mean, I, how can you how can you Look at all the evidence and say, nah, that didn't happen. I, I truly can't believe that anybody would think that they weren't here. Right. I actually, I, I gave a lecture earlier today on on that very subject. And, uh, you know, that's that's my hometown, and that's how I first got into this. So to uh-huh. me, that's a um, – there, there's a, a pretty good body of evidence to support that legend or that, 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 that story. It's not, in my mind, it's not a legend anymore, that story. And mm-hmm. and it's also sort of a common sense. We know that the that the Norse travelers came here in the early parts of the 11th century, and we know that mm-hmm. Sinclair, even though he's Scottish on his father's side, was Norse on his mother's side. So why couldn't he have followed them later 
taking the same path to Nova Scotia, which is where we think the Norse ended up, and maybe even further south than that, spent the summer, spent the winter in Nova Scotia, and then some of his guys returned to Europe, so they came out of Nova Scotia and took a left, and some of the guys took a right and decided to keep going south to see what they could find along the coast of New England. That, to me, that's just like, well, yeah, that's the human condition. That's, that's what explorers do. They explore. And so, yeah. yeah, some took a left, some took a right, and now you end up in, in the, at the mouth of the Merrimack River, up the Merrimack. We talked about that with the Phoenicians, and, and the rest mm-hmm. of the story holds together. So I, to me, that's, that's always been a story that would be more surprising if it didn't happen than that it did, even though we don't learn about that at school. I remember being a second grader, raising my hand and saying to my teacher, she had a timeline on the board, and it had Leif Erikson in the year 1002, had Christopher Columbus in the year 1492, and I said, well, how come nobody came back in between? It seemed <laughs> like there was plenty of reasons to come here. I mean, there's, there's timber that you needed to build your, 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 your Viking ships. They were, you know, if you think about Greenland, there's no timber in there, Greenland at all. A lot of Scandinavia has been deforested. We got Maine and Nova Scotia got great timber. There's fishing. There's trading with the natives. There's lots of really good reasons to come here. Um, why would you wait 500 years to come back? And I think the truth was there were waves of people coming back and forth, but they kept it secret. There was an economic advantage that they were taking, that they were, that they were availing themselves of. And so they just, it's like your favorite fishing hole. You don't talk about it. You keep it quiet. <laughs> and so, yeah, but, so that, but you, but you know, I mean, there, there there was definitely the copper to trade, but it was before fur trade and stuff like that. So why were they? I mean, I, I can see um, Prince Henry Sinclair coming because they were they were looking for land to settle. Um, although although of course you've turned it, you've turned the Templar treasure into into you know a fascinating addition to all of it and. The question still remains, you know, what happened to the treasure? They had 13 <laughs> yeah, well, ships. Well, first, what, what is the Templar treasure? You know, is it, is it gold and silver, or is it secret knowledge? Is it religious artifacts? Is it the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant? Is it, uh, you know, ancient writings that reveal the truth about early Christianity? I mean, all of the above? Oh, my gosh, the Templar treasure, we could do a whole show on that. Um, and, well, and like you said, we, probably they were bringing it here. They were probably bringing it here to hide it, because mm-hmm. remember the Templars were outlawed, and the and the, and the church was right. after them, and they were looking for a safe haven, some place to go and hide and hide their treasures. Well, and and certainly this wild country would have provided that for sure. Um, yeah. And but you know that's that's a really good point you bring up. You know that the. The Templar Knights were there in you know digging in the um the basement of of Solomon's temple right. uh, no the, they were they were it wasn't the basement they were in the stables, stables. I think, but they did stables. dig yeah yes. and and um they did find something now there were only three or five to. of them i you know there, there were nine but, there were nine we, of them actually there were nine okay yeah okay but 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 let's, Not many, let's though, you know, just just be logical. How much can nine men carry? And that's I mean, why I've it. always thought it's not just gold and silver, because it's just, it's, like you said, how much can nine men carry? It's the, the amount of, you know, uh, between the two of them, they carry one chest. So it's just not, it's not enough there. But if you, if you found something, just hypothetically, if you found the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, that's worth way more than its weight in gold because what you know what's that worth to the church or if you found 
hypothetically, just hypothetically, the marriage contract between Mary Magdalene and Jesus, which is one of the things I've seen mentioned in the potential Templar treasure. Okay, that's worth, for blackmail purposes, huge amounts of money in Europe during the medieval times if the church doesn't want that to come out. Like, so that's why I think the Templar treasure, quote-unquote, it's not just monetary. I think it's information or knowledge or artifacts that are worth more yeah. than their weight in gold. Now, they, had, now they, the, they eventually had plenty of gold, too, no doubt about that. So. I mean, I could understand the marriage contract between Jesus and Mary. I can, I can see how that could be what, what the, um, the uh, priest at, at Rennes-le-Chateau found and was able to blackmail the church. Yeah. I can, I yeah. can, that, one, that one I can go with. But um, Ark of the Covenant, you know, according to the Bible, anybody who gets close to it gets killed. So, you <laughs> know, chance, chances are they weren't lugging that around because it, it was pretty big and pretty heavy and it would have been pretty obvious. So, and yet the Templar treasure itself, by the time they, you know, that happened, they had accumulated such amazing wealth that, that you know, the, the king wanted the wealth and so, and he didn't want to pay his debt. So right. I can, I can, that, at that time frame in the 13th century, I can see how that could be gold, that could be um, any, but I don't think it's, it's, I don't think that their treasure had anything to do with religious artifacts at that time. I think it was just a whole bunch of gold and jewels, maybe, and, and whatever. Um, because at was, that point... Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. I, that wouldn't surprise me at all. The, um, there's a new book that just came out. Um, her name is Diana Muir. It's the, the Lost Templar Journals of Prince Henry Sinclair... Book one, uh, 1353 through 1395. So this is a woman who um, uh, uh, traces her lineage back to the St. Clair family and stumbled upon, according to her, the family journals starting in the 1300s going all the way up to the 1700s and um, is releasing them sort of piecemeal. But the journals in the 1300s um, are basically Prince Henry St. Clair as a younger man um, and, and, and talk about some really fascinating things, but talk a lot about how the Templars back then, they've been outlawed, but of course they, just because you outlaw something like you know, the mafia, that doesn't mean they go away. You outlaw people and they go underground, but that they were looking yeah. for uh, a, a refuge, a safe haven in, in the Western lands to get away from the, from the church. Um, and it talks about them you know, with their treasures as well. I mean, uh, you know, I think the thing that pops up most immediately is, of course, the Oak Island thing, and and I don't doubt at all that 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 uh, the Templars hit Oak Island for sure. But um, it, it would it, it makes sense just because that's the first thing you you hit Nova Scotia when you that's a, sort of your natural landing spot, and Oak Island, of mm-hmm. course, is on the on the eastern side of Nova Scotia, so it would make sense that you'd almost have to go right by it if you didn't hit it. So. I, yeah. I, I tend to agree with you. I think that that's a very likely possibility. If there was treasure, they either put it there and then moved it further inland later, or they left some of it there, and that may have been what was found. Um, there's also in the in these journals that I just mentioned before, the later journals talk about how the um, 
founding fathers in the 1775-ish went up to Nova Scotia to retrieve the Templar treasure because these were Freemasons, don't forget many of them. And, of course, they, the Freemasons yeah. are sort of the inheritors of the Templar traditions and perhaps yeah. secrets. And that they retrieve these treasures and use the treasures to fund the American Revolution. Again, these, these journals haven't been authenticated. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm yeah. not saying this is true, but it's a fascinating possibility, and it sort of makes sense. It sort of makes it go, oh, that does make sense. That's, so that, that's why the treasures are gone. They're not at Oak Island anymore because somebody took them in 1775, and that's how the Founding Fathers you know, helped fund the American Revolution. And, okay, that, that story sort of makes sense because we know the Freemasons were a huge part of the you know the huge number of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and and the sort of the Templar traditions of you know uh, of liberty and whatnot that those those ideals um, you could see where they, they had their roots in the old Templar beliefs and 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 it carried forward through the centuries and we ended up with the American experiment in democracy and you could sort yeah, of well, like connect the dots with all that and it makes sense. Well, if there was a treasure of any worth, then they didn't spend it well because the troops damn near froze to death. They starved to death. They had no <laughs> money for anything. I mean, they they well, Ben Franklin was over in France doing all sorts of naughty things. So, um, you know, I if they had a treasure to finance the revolution. It, it, they would have spent the money better, I think. You know, I mean, I. Well, I, it goes, it goes it back. To, this goes back to like we were talking about giants. How, you know, how how big a giant are we talking? Are we talking nine feet? Are we yeah. talking fifteen feet? How big a treasure are we talking? Are we talking you know two or three chests of treasure or twenty or thirty chests of treasure? And so that that obviously depends how much treasure is did you get? You know, how how many how many soldiers can you feed with that treasure? And so. I don't know the answer to that. It doesn't specify in the journals that I've read how much treasure, okay. treasure we're talking. Well, when you look at Freemasons and, and the Templars, um, you know, the, the, the amazing um, architectural stuff that's gone on with the tunnels and everything, you know, I, I, I can't imagine anybody other than somebody like a, a, a Mason or the Templar would have been able to construct and and do all of that stuff that happened that, that clearly is you know happened on the island. Frankly, yes. if I had been in charge of it, I would have gotten bulldozers in there and I would have pumped the whole. I I would have put a barrier around the whole damn island and just dug down because because there are tunnels underneath there that that had been mined for I I don't know what maybe copper maybe whatever but. But that that area has tunnels in all of the islands that you know people were prospecting for stuff. So, and, uh, and what you said about the who could have engineered that, um, you know, the Templars don't forget when they were in the Middle East, they did go to to, to Egypt to inspect the pyramids, and they would have seen mm-hmm. the flood tunnels in the pyramids. So that that technology, if there are flood, well, there are flood tunnels at Oak Island. We know that for sure. If, if, if yeah. we don't know exactly what they look like, but they could very well be based on the flood tunnel technology that was in use in the pyramids in Egypt. And so, again, like you said, the idea that a group of sort of pirates, you know, they're, they're sort of uneducated ruffian pirate types would have been <laughs> able to build flood tunnels, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, you would have needed skilled workmen, skilled 
people with engineering background um, to have done these flood tunnels. And so it can't just be a, a ragtag group of, of pirates. That doesn't make any sense. No. First of all, they wouldn't have buried it that deep. Second of all, somebody would have gone back and gotten it all. I mean, pirates are pirates. Come on. Yeah, but uh, yes, but you could also see a situation where the, the, that particular group of pirates, you know, got their ship got sunk and none of them survived, and so they're, they're you know they're gone. So there are scenarios where you could explain that away, but um, as far as how deep it goes, yes, that's a very good point. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, they're down to like 170 feet. Well, I think the initial tunnel went, I forget, 170 feet, but it only went down about 70 or 80 feet before it flooded. So. Um, but what I found fascinating was when they were digging, and they, they did find um, coconut husks that had been used to pack some of the tunnels, and that was carbon dated back to the 1300s. To me, that's, so, that's the single most compelling thing we've seen in all, all five seasons, five-plus seasons, is those coconut husks, the carbon dating. I totally agree with you. And the idea that a coconut would float its way up the Atlantic coast to Nova Scotia, a 600-year-old coconut, is like... Which is what somebody said. Well, maybe it floated from the Caribbean. Like, really, a coconut? I don't think they float that far up to, you know, <laughs> three thousand miles so they had or whatever. To, they had to import it. Now, come, I mean, this is a massive architectural thing that's going on there that went on there. It wasn't. It wasn't something that was just a couple of guys that said, "Let's let's screw with the future." I mean, even, you know, a past president was, was in on trying right. to unearth whatever it was there. But um, it's a great mystery. Did you see the first episode last week? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, what you said about building a coffer dam around, they are going to build a coffer dam around Smith Cove, not around the entire island. But like you said, yeah. we're going to block that whole thing off, and now, now I can dig where it's dry and see what's underneath there. So that's, that's a step in the right direction for sure. I'll tell you, the whole thing has actually made me fascinated with getting a metal detector and, you know, going out and finding my own treasure, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> he makes it sound easy. But, every time he goes out there, he finds something. I don't know if it's that easy, but, yeah, he, he finds uh, something every time he goes out. Yeah, but some of them are very boring, and uh, while while being historically really appropriate and wonderful, not as thrilling as, you know, as treasure and well, and so, also, like, so, he's, probably, he's probably out there for six hours, and they only show us the film of the last 60 seconds because who wants to watch a guy not find anything, you know, metal detecting. So, yeah. Well, but I, he's, he's I actually very good. He's a well-recognized expert in, in that field. He's, oh, he's yeah. very good at it. I, I, yeah. I think what really gets me is if they had found anything of significance, it would have hit the newspapers. It has, and, it has to because it, it's a regulated um, dig. It's you know it's the, the government of whether it's Nova Scotia or Canada, I forget what it is. But yes, if, Canada, I've always said to people, think, yeah. if they find anything, then you're going to read about it because it has to be reported to the government, and they have no incentive to keep it quiet. They have to share it. And so, if anything significant oh, yeah. is found, we're going to read about it in the press months before we see it on TV. So they might find yeah, something it, minor, but they can't find anything well, major. No, their dig is done. You know, their season is over, and that's why we're seeing it. It's kind of like we see it after right, the fact. There are, yes. Yeah. And 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 we we would have read about it if they if they had found anything major, we would have known about it already. So I'm going to watch the rest of the season, but I also know that the chances of them finding really anything amazing are pretty <laughs> slim because otherwise the secret would be out. They have to tell us. They have to tell the government. So. Absolutely. 
What yeah. do you think about the the aspect of the bloodlines of the of the Templars going, you know, way back? I mean, there's there's a big thing about the blood. I mean, in your book especially, the bloodline of Jesus and the bloodline of you know John the Baptist, because there were two bloodlines conflicting there for a great deal of time. Right. So. What do you think about the Merovingians claiming that they are direct descendants and stuff like that, and and that that there is a cabal now of of the true bloodline that is working under you know under cover to take over the world? Yeah, you know that look that that's fun stuff for novels, and of course I have fun with it in my novels. But if there if there was a if there was a Jesus and Mary Magdalene bloodline going back two thousand years. I mean that that bloodline is so dissipated and watered down now. Probably half of the world's population, or at least the European population, would would have the, that blood in them now, just because of so many generations. And so, I don't necessarily think there's any kind of cabal of bloodline people. I, you know, I I think what's interesting more what's more interesting than the physical bloodline is the concept of the idea that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had children. And what's important about that is the idea that back then uh, Jesus treated his wife, Mary Magdalene, as sort of an equal, okay, and that, and that, mm-hmm. that, that the importance of, uh, of, of balance and, and the feminine aspect to a healthy relationship, whether it's a church or a marriage or a society, that even back then, Jesus may have recognized, because, you know, he called her his, his most important advisor or most important, I forget what the mm-hmm. terms he used, but he recognized her importance, Mary Magdalene's importance. Just, again, just the idea that, that the feminine is important, and, of course, the, the church for a long time didn't believe that. For a long time, it was such a patriarchal organization. And I think that may have been one of the things that caused the Templars and the church to butt heads. I think the Templars because of the time they spent in the Middle East, because they were worldly, because they were well-traveled, because they were well-read, because they were exposed to other cultures, understood that a healthy society requires a balance, requires duality, requires masculine and feminine, just like nature requires you know, dark and light, hot and cold, whatever. It, it requires balance. And that, that, that's what the Templars and the Church were butting heads about. But again, this whole idea of the bloodline, I think it's important because it conceptualizes and recognizes the importance of the feminine in society. And, 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 and we've gotten away from that. Of course, the church got away from that during medieval times. You know, we've gotten away from that lately. In our, I don't want to get too much into modern politics, but the idea that a healthy society has masculine and feminine characteristics, I think, I mm-hmm. think that's the takeaway for me about the whole bloodline conversation. Well, I think I, I would tend to agree with you on that. And, you know, it's it's like, I mean, you can really get in hip deep with waiters on when you get down to those those people that wrote the Bible, the scribes that put it together and their philosophy, you know, understanding the times it was written, women had no voice and women had no purpose other than breeding, of course, and, mm-hmm. you know, cooking and cleaning. And, and so... Um, during the time of Jesus, the the the, the stories that, that really brought women more to the fore were not were not really put into the Bible. They weren't put into any you know they were kind of just shoved aside. And a lot of the um, gospels are now 
coming more and more and more into frequent usage and reading and and you begin to see that, that during that time part of the ministry of this man was on top of love compassion and all of that was that there was an equality there and um i i know the church is is quite upset to a degree in that you know a lot of their philosophies ha- have to change according to the times in order for them to continue to be relevant in the lives of millions of people right and we see this with the with the priest abuse scandals that just continue on the and of course the if we think about the number of people who have left the church in the past 20 years or so because of the scandals it hasn't even been that long I don't think but uh, it just it just um it, it, I think that when, you know, truth, uh, what's that expression I learned in law school? Facts are stubborn things. I guess that's the way we'll say it. Facts are stubborn things, and, 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 and they demand to be, to be recognized. And when people try to hide things and lie about things and, and, and change history, eventually it catches up with you, and, and eventually the mm-hmm. truth almost always does come out. And so... You know, getting back to the, to the medieval church, this whole idea where you know they were trying to keep keep the feminine. Let's think about like uh, a good example is, is is healing. So a lot of the women in medieval times were healers, and they were educated in using how to use roots and herbs to heal the sick. Well, the church didn't want people being healed by medicine because they wanted people instead to go to church and make a contribution, so the priest would pray for them to be healed. So there's an economic advantage to praying to be healed, even though it didn't work, even though the roots and herbs work better. So what did the church do? Yeah. They, took, they, they called these women witches, and they had witches. them, you know, prosecuted, pers- you know, hung or burned or whatever, you know, these, these crones or whatever. They, they demonized them so that, so that they, they, were, they were become cast aside. And, and, again, so the church was doing these things not because it was – Right, but because it was self-preservation, and so you know that's when we get in trouble, obviously. And but but and, and it's, it's funny because we we start get into this too much, and 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 we get down um, just go down a path we can never get out of. But it's fascinating to see <laughs> some of the some of the, the how the language has has mirrored this. So when we when we talk about the word um, you know lunatic, that comes from the word. Lunar, which means moon, of course, and of course that's associated mm-hmm. with a woman's menstrual cycle. But so a lunatic, a crazy person, is someone who's feminine, okay? <laughs> because and that's where that word comes from. And you see a lot of this, a lot of the words that we have, and, and you look back at the evolution of them, and they're also like heavy-handed by the church trying to make feminism or, or female, the female somehow evil or unstable or something. And that's just one example of a lunatic. Um, it's just one example that oh, I always try to use. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic example of that. Oh, yeah, it's a good one, too. I know that, that um, there is a lot of, I mean, you, you do um, utilize the Templars um, shamelessly in all of your stories, which I love. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I think one of the things that in your book that, that, keeps cropping up over and over and over again is that and and your characters are fabulous and i you know just adore the way that you've developed them um but but one of the things you keep knocking your head up against in the books is that you know 
history is hesitant to give to give any validity to um to anything before you know Columbus and 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 I know I I I've often spoken of a, of one of the kids in my class who said you know well Columbus discovered America I said really what state did he land in I don't yeah, know I yeah. said why don't you Google it and tell me which which state he landed in because you know we have Plymouth Rock for the for the uh, Pilgrims so where was it that Columbus touched touched ground first and he came back and he looked at me and he said he didn't discover America. I said, no, no, he didn't. <laughs> so why well, do you the, think... Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no I, I was... I'm sorry. I was just wondering why Why do you think that historians really, for some reason, textbooks, I mean, I understand the textbook thing. It costs a fortune to print these textbooks. And if they have to acknowledge so much other stuff, if they have to actually admit to... to to the populace that they were wrong and there are more facts out there, it'll cost them a fortune and schools will have to pay a fortune to get new textbooks. I got all that. But but why? Why 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 are we so stuck in our ways that we won't admit that there is a rich cultural, historical trend going on in this country that we aren't teaching our children? Why? Yeah. So for a long time, the answer to that question was a gentleman by the name of Samuel Elliott Morrison, who was a, uh, the chairman of the history department at Harvard and also happened to be Christopher Columbus's biographer. He was a big Chris guy. I mean, he thought Christopher Columbus was amazing. He, you know, he, he championed him. And this is a guy who, who got the Congressional Medal of Freedom. He won a Pulitzer Prize. There's a statue of him in, in Boston Common. Um, this guy, Samuel L. Morrison, was, was, really, was really at the top of the academic pyramid. But he made it clear to anybody at Harvard and, by extension, anybody in the Ivy Leagues, if you happen to want to promote someone like Prince Henry Sinclair or some other kind of alternative history that undermined his boy Christopher Columbus in any way, it was academic suicide. I mean, he was really vehement about that, that the rest of, the, the, rest of the, the, the theories were all bunk, and he would make it really difficult to get tenure or to do a dissertation for your Ph.D. or whatever. So for a long time, for an entire generation, it, was, it would have been academic suicide for a historian or even an archaeologist to start looking at this kind of thing. Now, he's, he's long since gone, and so that's changing a little bit. And we are seeing some changes. We are seeing more and more you know, documentaries on TV, Scott Walter's show, um, other documentaries, other books. And, and, and the ocean liner is starting to, to turn, and we are starting to see more and more people open to the idea of exploration before Columbus. It just takes time, though. But for a long time, that was the reason. And now this is just one of those things that, again, takes time to, to, to turn the ocean liner because there's just so much momentum build up in a certain direction. But we'll get there. Well, I've, even... seen, I'm, I've seen it already in the last 10 years. I've seen a, I've seen a, a, a big change in people's attitudes when I, when I give lectures talk about this kind of stuff at first i would get people looking like what are you crazy and now i get oh yeah yeah that makes sense yeah what you're saying makes sense which is which is gratifying well you, you know when um thomas jefferson sent um lewis and clark out to mm. chart the way to the pacific he had given i forget which one of them um a grand code that was developed in france and he was 
he was told that he should, you know, report back to him by any means possible as time went on. And one of his, his main charges was to look for Indian tribes that had Celtic language and Celtic words in their vocabulary. Right. Right. And that that was because the Pope and when 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 um all of this, you know, claiming of territory started, the Pope put out papal bulls that said, um, you can claim a territory so long as there are no Christians on that you know, at, at that time. So long as there are no Christians that are um living in that space at that time, because if Christians are there then, then they own the land. And so basically, he was sending them out to to see if, and he they did indeed find there were Indians that had Celtic words, they had Celtic practices, and it was it was sort of um, if if indeed they found that, then Great Britain had no right to the territory to to give them their freedom, basically. Right. So yeah, and that tribe was called the Mandan tribe, and and the reason yeah. Jefferson was so interested in them was because. The Mandans were believed to be perhaps Welsh, which is what Jefferson was. And yeah. so he had sort of grown up with those legends in, in his own family. Um, but, yes, um, I, I, I agree. That I forget if it was uh, Lewis or Clark. I think it was Clark. but No, I think it was Lewis. Um, was, was looking and, and met with these, these tribe members for a long time. And, and part of the theory, by the way, in addition to just the concept of, um, you know, if, if they were Christian then they owned the land, also, there's there's theories that this was a this was a, a, a tribe of they're called the White Indians, the Mandan White Indians, but also the idea that <clears throat> there may have been some connection back to like King Arthur and those legends too as well. So it's sort of an interesting story because you know the story of Arthur, it, he sort of goes off someplace to the west and gets killed by arrow bows and arrows and stuff, and no one's quite sure what what, what that is. And so some people actually believe. That the Mandan are, are sort of descendants of King Arthur, of all things, and so that's another fascinating possibility. Wow, yeah, that is cool. Um, yes. No, I, I, I just, you know, when you when you look at all of that and you think of, um, again, all of the subterfuge that was going on, you, you know, uh, our history books basically say, you know, the the Pilgrims came and the Indians taught them how to plant corn and and they had a big feast after a while. And I, just just from doing my own genealogy and 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 reading the um, the journals of of some of my ancestors, you know, well, you know, George went out to milk the cows and the Indians killed him. And um, I, I mean, if you if you really dig into the history, if you live in this area, you do find that that times were were very. Um, they they weren't all peaceful little let's get together and eat have a big dinner. Um no. the Indians the Indians were were not thrilled with with having the colonists come. And but what really what really really upsets me is that when when the early settlers they weren't settlers, they were invaders. When they came here, they didn't take the time to learn about the culture and the religion of the people that were here. They assumed that they were barbarians and and immediately tried to convert them to Christianity without paying any attention to their connection to the soil to the to the land to to the area they they were they were keepers of the land they they didn't kill unless they needed to eat or or needed clothes and 
I mean, the the we invaded this country. We weren't settlers. We were invaders, and we right. were so portrayed it's, that it's way. Both, both. Both the both the English colonists, the Pilgrims and whatnot, and also Columbus before them, it was the same kind of thing. Was this this um, this uh, aggressive sort of uh, um, takeover? T- yeah, t- takeover exactly. Whereas the earlier, and getting back to Prince Henry Sinclair and the Templars and 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 what what I think happened, which is in 1398, and we talked about that a little bit, but one of the reasons why the Native American sources I've spoken to, one of the reasons why they say that the Native Americans welcomed Sinclair and the Templars back in the 14th century was because they came and did it the right way. They came and treated the Native Americans with dignity and respect and had mm-hmm. similar values, uh, again, traded with them, built an alliance, and were allowed to come in and explore and, 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 and build the Newport Tower and whatnot because there was a friendship there, a friendship treaty, and were given, they were given safe passage as opposed to Columbus, who came later, and then the Pilgrims who came after that, who sort of pushed and bullied their way in. Um, and so, you know, one of the important things people say, I mean, what, what difference does it make? Like, who, like why, do we, why should we stop celebrating Columbus Day, and why do we care about Prince Henry Sinclair? And I said, for one reason is Columbus was a, was a nasty, you know, he treated people in the He was a barbarian. He murdered, oh, he, he he murdered, murdered people and, and, and had fun. And he was a yeah. bumbler. He thought he was going to, to China or India. He didn't know where he was going. There's lots of things about it. he's not heroic. He's not somebody you want to name a day after. He's not somebody you want your kids to emulate. But Prince Henry Sinclair, on the other hand, much more heroic story. You know, it's a story of trying mm-hmm. to escape um, persecution in, in Europe. They came and treated the, the Native Americans the right way. They built an alliance. Maybe they had a treasure with them. You know, whatever. The, maybe they were the roots of the founding fathers. I mean, that's a good story. Like, that, that story oh, yeah. is something that is more heroic. And so, to me, that's a story I would want my grandkids being taught. It's too late for my own kids. But that's a better story than the bumbling, barbaric Columbus. I mean, like, that's not a good story. Why, why are we worshiping this? Or not worshiping. Why are we, um, you know, looking up to this guy, idolizing this guy? That makes no sense. Well, the the Westford Knight. I mean, really, really, really. It it is. Um, it's a great story. I can you kind of briefly fill it in. I I know in your sure. book you did, and I I was it, it. It is a great story, and I I think there's a great deal of accuracy to it, and I think that that you know it isn't just a story that there is. Um, it's not just a legend. It, it, there's so much truth in it. It's amazing. Yeah, so Prince Henry Sinclair, he was a, uh, a Scottish baron or lord, and he ruled in the air, uh, near Edinburgh in Roslyn. And, by the way, his grandson is the one who eventually built Roslyn Chapel, made famous in the Da Vinci Code and all that stuff. So he's part of that family, okay? But getting back to our story, he also ruled in the northern islands of Scotland called the, the Orkney Islands. And he ruled there because his mother was Norse. So his father was Scottish, his mother was Norse, so he was royal on both sides. Um, but because of his mother's Norse background, he probably had um, family charts and maps and, of course, the stories about how the Norse, a couple centuries earlier, crossed the North Atlantic, island-hopped their way across the North Atlantic from Iceland to Greenland and eventually to Labrador and Newfoundland to what they called Vinland, which is someplace in you know either either 
Nova Scotia or New Brunswick or Maine or Cape Cod or wherever, okay? But they eventually found their way over here. So Sinclair knew all these stories. And, and as I said earlier, it would be surprising if for 500 years nobody followed their path over to Vinland. And I think Sinclair is mm-hmm. one of the people who did. Ben, they, they came across, mm-hmm. they spent the, the, the stories, they spent the, the winter in Nova Scotia with the Mi'kmaq, and then a bunch of them returned home, but some of them continued down the coast. And they got to the Merrimack River in northern Massachusetts. They came up the Merrimack. Uh, they probably had Native American guides, and they came uh, onto a small river off of the Merrimack called the Stony Brook, which leads to a town called Westford, which is about 25 miles northwest of Boston. Westford happens to have the highest hill in northeastern Massachusetts, and again, assuming they had Native American guides, the Native American guides would have wanted to take them up this hill, which happened to be a gathering spot for the tribes in the area. It was considered sacred ground. And they brought them up here to show them the countryside, you know, to, view the, to, view the, to view the land. And on the way up the hill, it's, it's, a, it's a very high hill, as I said. One of their guys, one of the Scotsmen died. We think his name was Sir James Gunn. And mm-hmm. as was the custom in medieval times, to memorialize his death, they carved an effigy in the rock ledge. And you can still today clearly see a medieval battle sword carved into the rock ledge. And we have older photographs and rubbings showing his shield and his shoulders and his head. And it's the shield that has the coat of arms that allow us to identify him as Sir James Gunn. Um, mm-hmm. But the battle sword is still visible today. And so that's the Westford Knight marker. And we've put uh, plexiglass over the, over the carving to try to protect it and um, a couple of years ago, a local firefighter built a made a beautiful bronze statue of Sir James Gunn, and we've got signage there and stuff. But there are other artifacts in in the area that seem to support the idea of Scottish exploration right around that time period. And you know, I go into all of them in my books, and and, and there's, there's there's stuff, stuff you called do. And- uh, rune stones, which is a runic script, uh, a couple of different rune stones, and a round stone tower in Newport called the Newport Tower, and uh, a boat stone, which is in Westford, and there's a whole bunch of them. I don't have time to go into them all today, but more and more we're getting more and more um, uh, artifacts sort of piling up, all dating right around to 1400, all seeming to be of Scottish origin, Templar-related, that seem to support mm-hmm. this idea that Sinclair and his group were here, again, 100 years before Columbus. Well, I think the Newport Tower especially um I mean, I, I watched something just the other night, and somebody said, oh, well, the Newport Tower, ah, it was an ancient windmill. Well, you don't put a fireplace in a windmill. I mean, you know, you just, it, it doesn't make sense. And, exactly. And the, New, and the, the unit Newport of Tower. Yeah. Go ahead. Go, <laughs> no, you go the, ahead. The unit You're of the measurement expert. to build the tower is, is, the, uh, is the Scottish L, and, and most I think most, the most compelling evidence we have is that um, the group I belong to, New England Antiquities Research Association, about seven years ago when the town was repairing the sidewalk around the tower, we found a, a chunk of mortar that had fallen off the tower. And, and in, in ancient times, mortar was, was made using um, seashells because that had lime uh-huh. in it. And so we found a piece of mortar that had a seashell still attached to it. And we sent the seashell to Woods Hole Oceanographic Society for carbon dating, and it came back early 1400s. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. Um, there's not a number of things about the tower that we think prove that it's 14th century Scottish slash Templar, but that kind of thing is hard to get past. You know, you've got the carbon dating going back that far. 
um, what you said earlier about it being a windmill, it makes no sense. They wouldn't have a fireplace in there. And, and more to the point, you wouldn't build a windmill on eight pillars because it wouldn't withstand the lateral forces. Just engineering-wise, it makes no sense to design a windmill that way. Not to mention that the colonists just didn't build in stone back then. If you've ever been to Plymouth Plantation, everything's in wood during that time period. So oh, yeah. There's a whole bunch of things I, I mean, the tower that's green, Templar, Scottish. Well, I, I think that's one of the things that, you know, when you when you look at our our colonial places that, that are, are preserved, everything's in wood. Even their fences were in wood. So that so that the colonials didn't build um you know, you know, the stone walls, they built um wood wood fences to keep their stock in and to keep their horses in and everything else. Uh, yeah. Right, the, you make that you make that point in your documentary. And it's a it's a valid one, and of course it's 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 sort of common sense. Wood's a lot easier to build with than stone. I mean, you do you'd use stone if you had to, if you had no more wood. Like if you know if you happen to be in Greenland or something and it's been deforested, but there's so much wood around. Why would you bother? Oh yeah, lugging these heavy stones. It's just it's too much work. No, and and it was the the more you look at it, the more you see all of these colonial villages that are meticulously kept and. Nice little villages and all of that, and then, then you have these stone walls and stone chambers, and 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 nobody's paying any attention to them. And and I know that that um, the Nira people weren't real happy with the fact that I put up the the map with the GPSs. They felt that you know that would tell people where to go to destroy them. And and I countered with no, I I I'm figuring if I draw attention to them, they won't deface them, they'll try to protect them. But so many of them have been pulled apart just because roads are expanding and they don't care. And and it, it boggles my mind. There used to be over 800 of those chambers in the Northeast. Now we're down to about 200. Wow, is it that? I didn't realize it was that drastic. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And that, that number goes back five years seven years so so it could be even fewer but but to to actually i get the same feeling in the stone chamber that i get um when you step into a crop circle there is almost a buzz of some sort and you do you do often smell ozone so you know it's it's kind of like it has created an energetic of some sort and it could be an earth energy energetic i'm not saying it's extraterrestrial because I don't think it is but but there is um, an energy there that is quite profound and can't put a finger on it it's just and the fact that there aren't, aren't in the ones I've been in there are no bugs or animals or anything animals don't you know use them as shelter or anything like that and there there are especially in the um in in one section of New York, there are there are just so many chambers, and they you know you know if it was a, a single chamber someplace, you you could think okay so this was a ritual place, this was a place of offerings, this was a place of celebration, but there are so many of them that that you 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 kind of wonder did every family have a little place to do their ritual stuff or whatever, but but the Indians didn't do that. The Indians, you know, they had um, they had lodges, but they were they were built out of uh, wood. 
They weren't stone. Once in a while they did use stone, but they would always leave the roof off the top because they wanted to have these sort of vision quests and they wanted the spirits to be able to come down and, 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 and enter. And so they always mm-hmm. had the roof off the top. So, again, from the Native Americans I've brought to these sites, they said, no, we didn't do this. I brought a, a, tribal, a Native American tribal chief to the America Stonehenge site because some historians continue to insist that that's, that's Native American. And what he said to me, he said, this site's amazing, but we didn't do this. And, in fact, he said, <laughs> he said, he said I, and this is before he knew anything about it, before, and one of the things about the America Stonehenge site, for your listeners who may not have been there, there's something called a sacrificial stone. And we think that if it really was uh, built by the ancient Phoenicians, we know that the Phoenicians, who were known in the Bible as the Canaanites, did sacrifice the children of their enemies to their sun god, Baal. And there's something called the sacrificial stone there that one of the possibilities is there was child sacrifice going on, as, as, as uncomfortable as that is. It's just one of the possible facts. And he didn't know anything about this. He had not read up on the site. He didn't know we were even going that day. But he walked over close to that sacrificial table, and he started like almost getting, almost having tremors, and he started sweating. He said, I've gotten really bad vibes from this place, and I, I need to move away. Like he could sense the evil in that. He called it the evil in that site. So he's like, huh. there's no way we built this, because I'm not even comfortable being here. But he sensed the negative karma of that well, site, which I thought was really fascinating. Yeah, I when when I was there, and you know we 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 had read up on it, so we were very familiar with what we were seeing. And one of the things I wanted to see was was there the quote sacrificial table. I didn't get the feeling that it was people that were being sacrificed. I got the feeling that that it was that large so that a, a, a thing like a cow or a bull could be put on that and that the groove around it, yes, was to, to drain off the blood, just like a, a carving platter. But I didn't get the feeling that people were sacrificed. I mean, sacrifice to me is uncomfortable any way you look at it, but I didn't get the feeling that people were being sacrificed. I got the feeling that that was, that was where you know, a large animal was put, maybe a deer or whatever, but... But I didn't, you know, I I'm, I just didn't get the feeling. I, I didn't get a spooky feeling. Um, yeah. I got a feeling that it was an animal of some sort that that was put there to prepare for to either dry the meat or or for a celebration of some sort. Don't know which. Hmm. But um, you know, I I like I I I'm not that in tune with that kind of stuff, so I didn't get a feeling either way. You know, I'm sort of the the, the left brain, you know, I'm, I'm the lawyer doing the analysis. I, I'm not really that spiritual, but I just tell you what his reaction was, which really um, surprised me. The other interesting thing that happens at that site, and this is similar to what you said about the chambers and the animals living there, is we go up there a lot during uh, solstices and equinoxes, and oftentimes there are groups of of Wiccans or pagans, and they're there to celebrate as well. And oftentimes they'll do an offering to Mother Earth where they'll put down. Um, fruits and vegetables in a, in a pile mm-hmm. and leave them there as an offering. And often we'll come back the next day or the day after to watch, you know, to try to catch one of the alignments uh, on a sunny day or a sunny evening or a sunny morning. So we'll come back two or three days in a row. We come back, and even though 
these these fruits are just left in the middle of the forest, they're not touched mm-hmm. by the animal. We go three or four days, and, and they're not touched. It's crazy. You would think that the squirrels would take them, the birds would take them. They're just left there, and it's not like they're shellacked or anything. They're just left out, and for some reason, the animals don't touch them, almost like they know yeah. that they're not supposed to. It's crazy. <laughs> so, I mean, who, who it's, knows? It's who cool. I have no like, explanation. Yeah, I have no yeah, explanation for it, but you know, I, I did I did notice that as well. Um, we're we're right down to the last couple of minutes. This we, time went by. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I, I didn't really realize that. Wow, it's almost eleven o'clock. You're right. Jeez. Um, I, I your website is is uh, www.davidbrodybooks.com. Um, your books are you know it's um, wait let me let me. What's the name of the trilogy? I was I'm looking fast and I can't find it. Well, the the, the, the um, Boston Law series is is, a, is the first, but the, it's it's the um, Templars in America Templars. series is, is yeah. Templars in America series. And you know, Barbara, I I try to I try to keep them affordable. So if you're interested in in buying them on Kindle, they're less than five dollars each. And for people who like to read on Kindle, one of the advantages is because they're they're illustrated, the pictures come out really nice on Kindle because you can blow them up and they're all color. Um, the books oh, yeah. themselves are four. Fourteen ninety-five, so they're still relatively affordable. Um, and again, the pictures are there as well. But again, I really, I try really hard to keep these things within uh, within reach of most people because I'm so passionate about this, and I want people to read the books, <laughs> and I want people to, you know, to study this, and I want people to call me up and say, "We have a site in our backyard. You have to come look at." And and that's how the research yeah. grows on. So, well, it um, it it is a fabulous. Is there going to be a ninth book soon? I think so. Yes, I'm gonna. I, I typically start right around this time of year. Um, I have some good ideas already on what I want to do, and I'm, I'm just amazed that I'm on the ninth book already. I, mean, I thought when I finished the first one that there was, you know, lucky to be a second one, and yet the more time I spend looking at this, the more there seems to be that we don't know, which obviously oh, yeah. makes and more opportunity to write. So, you know, I always make a point of reading whoever's I'm going to interview of reading their book. Uh, in your case, I read all eight of them. So, God bless um, you, <laughs> Barbara. <that's> so great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I was addicted. Um, still am. Well, so I, I want to thank you so very, very much. This has been such a, a joy, and um, we'll have to do this again. I would love to, and, and uh, very much look forward to it. Thank you. It's, it's an honor to have uh, to have you as a host and, and to be able to speak with you for two hours about this stuff because you're so knowledgeable. So I really do appreciate it. Oh, well, it's been my pleasure, and I want to thank you again, and I want to thank everybody for listening, and I want to thank everybody for um, paying attention to the history that isn't written about because David does a beautiful job of giving you the artifacts to look at and letting you make your own mind up. Of course, I have opinions on it all, but, but you know, and everybody should. So um, good night, everybody. Good night, David. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. My pleasure. Thank you.